The Bear Essentials Podcast gives older bears a place to gather for real talk regarding topics and issues that they can relate to. Here at The Bear Essentials, we aren't just having conversations. We are looking to provide actionable intelligence through real-life experience and expertise of our guests. Our mission is to build a strong community that elevates and motivates people to go beyond their limiting beliefs by helping them realize that getting older is not an excuse to hibernate on their goals, but a reason to work harder. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Charles Wallace. Today's guest is an Irish Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter. He has worked with the likes of U2, Paul McCartney, Snow Patrol, Madonna, and even Al Pacino. Back in 2011, he had fronted the band in excess. So please, without further ado, let's welcome the very talented Kieran Gribben to the show. Hey, Kieran, thank you for joining me. Uh, I really appreciate it. Can't wait to uh, get into this. I'm really excited. Would you mind introducing yourself to the audience? Hi, Charles. Thank you for having me on your podcast. My name is Kieran Gribben. Um, I'm a musician. I'm Irish, living in Australia. And I'm still singing for my supper at 46. Started gigging when I was 15. Wow. So, Kieran, I guess I always like when I talk to musicians, I always like to ask because I have no musical ability. Does music run in your family? Yes, it does. Um, You know, being a my grandfather sang. My father tells me stories of my grandfather just working and driving a truck and just singing at the top of his lungs, but never sang professionally. But nobody did in Ireland in those days. I, I, music and the Irish go hand in hand, basically. There's hardly a family in Ireland that doesn't have somebody as a singer, a, dart, a dancer, an artist or whatever. That's yeah. So so obviously you're from Ireland. So, I, I you know, who are who were some of your influences growing up? In, in as in influences in music, yeah, he's talking. Um, yeah, look, anything Irish started with Irish traditional. Um, father would sing and play traditional stuff. We'd be listening to the radio all the time at nighttime, so you'd be getting you know old folk songs like Luke Kelly, that sort of stuff. Singer, he's a, a, um, unbelievable, probably the godfather of Irish <laughs> uh, trad singing. Uh, you know that, and that he was a massive influence. Uh, but anything to do with the Irish folk scene, that's and traditional Irish fiddles and and Ellen pipes and Byron drums, going to sessions. So you, a lot of the time it was just old men playing in the corner with a bunch of young people, as Irish mm-hmm. sessions are, and you'd just be standing in the room gobsmacked at at, at thirty people playing the same melody mm-hmm. and in harmony. So that was those were the massive influences as a, as a youngster. And. Um, Kieran, did you grow up in you Northern Ireland, right? Yeah. yeah. So, and, and I wanted to ask too, because my family, we are Irish, right? I'm not directly from Ireland, obviously, but the Northern, I know growing up and I'm just a tad bit older than you, but I used to, I used to hear like relatives, they would talk about the troubles over there. Um, what was that like for you growing up, you know, during that time? Was it, was it was it scary like was it did you experience anything that was you know that had to deal with that look every everyone in northern ireland has got their tales you know of uh, the the troubles and it was as a youngster though you were growing up and you didn't know any different i was blessed to be brought up and uh, uh, i'm the eldest of five kids mom and dad both hard working 
we lived in a country area. I, lo I knew and loved all my neighbours, so I had a great community around me. But, you know, I, you're, in Northern Ireland, you don't have to go too far to find bloodshed. You know, mm. I had neighbours that were in the IRA. Um, in the parish I was from, Balahi Parish, the two hunger strikers. People remember that era. But the town that I played football for was predominantly a Protestant town, but we had a Gaelic football pitch, and I played Gaelic football there, and it was called Castle Dawson, and it was predominantly a Protestant town. So I lived in this country road between the two of them, and, uh, and thankfully had good parents, and was drawn to music rather than fighting and sectarianism. But it was everywhere. There's no escaping sectarianism and hatred. Uh, but, you know, People got on with their lives, so I didn't know any different. I just had great role models around me. Everyone got, went to their work in the morning, and thankfully all of my neighbours and friends and uh, cousins and uh, didn't die. Um, you know, we had, you had, you had many scares. You had neighbours that were shot and SAS landing and taking out an IRA man up the road and, you know, that sort of stuff. And being searched, going to school in the morning by British soldiers, paratroopers, with their berets on or their helmets on and their, their rifle. You know, that sort of stuff. So it was a bizarre experience, uh, but, you know, I didn't know any different. So I just thought this was normal, and most people did as well. Well, that that, that is fascinating to me because I would hear I would hear family talk about it. And and I was always like I, I would always as a kid, I was like, I wonder what that must have been like for a kid, you know, around my age growing up in that type of environment. Well, it does. It seems like you definitely had really good role models. Now, would you say that the troubles, the times over there in Ireland, did that have an influence on not just your music, but do you feel like that influenced a lot of the musicians from that era coming out of that time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you can't help being affected when there's that much tension in the air. It's palpable when someone gets killed. You know, Northern Ireland was a very small place. Ireland's a very small place. It's only 350 miles long and like maybe just over, I don't know, 160 or 70 miles wide. It's not big. So, you know, it was just a, a, a unique period of time. Um, and I'm glad that, you know, we have moved on. There's peace there now, but it was a, it's been a long journey and we've still got, you know, a fight with it all. You know, the education is the, is the biggest problem about Northern Ireland for me where I, you know, I think it's, you know, in the early 90s, 92, 93% of kids are still in ed segregated education. You either go to a mm. Catholic school or you go to a Protestant school. And, uh, you know, growing up, I couldn't figure that one out. It didn't make much sense. Uh, uh, so I think it's about time, you know, that happens. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because for me growing up, we didn't, it was, it was segregated in this way. We had where I lived, it was Catholic school or public school. Now, the difference was, in the area I lived in, Catholic school was it was probably a better education and it was safer. So a lot of people, Catholic or not, they ended up sending their kids to Catholic school because it was a safer place to go to school as opposed to the public schools. So that's uh, that doesn't exist really as much here now. It's it's a lot different. Most kids are, you know, are still Catholic schools, but it's not as as prevalent. A lot of kids will go to, to public schools. Um, even my own daughter now, she's actually went Catholic school all through like up until her teenage years. Now she's in a performing arts public school. She's a dancer. So uh, good. Yeah. So, so for you, when do you start to like, when's it start to become clear as you're growing up? Like, okay, this is, this is my thing. This is what I want to do. And you really start to go after it. 
Look, I was very, very young. Like I, like I fell in love. I distinctly remember remember my great uncle Patrick playing the fiddle, and I was standing in front of a fire, and all I can remember is the silhouette against the window. But I remember him playing the fiddle and falling in love with the music. And then you're going to sessions, and you were surrounded by you know going to local sessions in people's houses and pubs and the local Gaelic football clubs. Everyone would mingle, and you would start from a very, very young age. So I knew then at six I was writing songs, and I was telling my mum, this is it, I'm going to be a rock star. And at 11 years of age, I was I bought my first guitar and I was be, I was playing rock and roll stuff. I was learning all the mm. classic rock riffs like Smoke on the Water and Sweet mm. Child of Mine and this type of stuff and Metallica riffs and stuff and got into rock music. Um, and, you know, once I could play that instrument, I was already singing. Mm. I was writing songs. So it was just this natural progression of this is what I'm doing. But, you know, it wasn't easy. Um, <laughs> it's been a, I, it took me a long time before I got any success. I had to learn the hard way and make a million mistakes. And, uh, well, that's like pretty much anything in life, right? You, you, all those failures. I, I've learned now as I'm older. I didn't think of it back then, but I think you would agree that all those failures were valuable lessons towards our towards our ultimate successes. So that that's a good thing. So, so as far as singing, because. And listen, I, I I will admit this, right? I just started to I, I connected with you a few weeks ago, checked you out on YouTube, and I was listen. I I want to say this. I really mean this sincerely. I was blown away by your vocals. They're absolutely amazing. Your voice was was that voice is that natural or were you did you have to go through singing lessons or anything like that? I've I've had one singing lesson and it was a group singing lesson when I was 21 um but I just always sang and again mm. again it's it was always around me so I just thought everybody sang because mm. everybody was singing I was regularly going to these things from kids my brother can sing my sister's an amazing artist my other sister can play guitar and sing my dad's got a singing voice but you know but none of them took it on as a profession so the singing was there. It's natural. I think I've had to learn a lot, make again, making mistakes with the singing. You go out, you start, once you start performing in pubs, you're, you're learning other people's songs. So I learned a million covers over the years and still are, I'm still, I am learning covers. It's bizarre. Uh, I've never really enjoyed the process of learning another song, but you learn a lesson every time you do it because you learn how good the song is and then you learn how good they were as musicians. Um, but, uh, yeah, singing was, it just came natural and um, it just was there. My brother whistled before he could speak. Music mm. was there. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. You telling me that, I'm not going to lie. I'm like, great. Like, I, I was hoping you were going to say you had to take many lessons to sing the way you do. But obviously, uh, overachiever with those vocals. I mean, Kieran, it's very, very good, man. I, I enjoy <laughs> it and I'm, I'm blown away. Oh, cheers, man. Well, maybe before, before this, maybe I'll inspire you and, and someone will be interviewing you in a podcast in years to come and they'll be going, we saw your process and now you're out there singing. Can you sing, Charles? No, I can't. Can you my play an instrument? Can. No, my, it's weird too, because my, um, my uncle, my uncle's a very, very, very good lead guitar player. Like I'm not uh, even, I'm not even set. So over here, you were mentioning like Metallica, you know, Guns and Roses, those kind of like back in the eighties, my uncle had a band. They were called Simon Catholic, and we would go and check them out. And you know, they would they would let me help them bring the stuff into the club. Right, I would get in illegally to the club, but you know, they almost made a video for MTV. Like he's 
he's that good of a guitar player and you know my sister's had training she can sing um interesting story my sister you familiar the irish tenors when it was ronan tynan anthony kearns john mcdermott yeah I, i've never met the lads but yes i know who i've saw their posters and saw them touring years ago they were up in a well not it was just john mcdermott he was up in peekskill and don't ask me how somehow he had an email address i said i'm coming to this show my sister would love to sing with you kieran i kid you not he responds he goes meet me in there when you get there so i'm like okay <laughs> so we go in and i want to give a shout out here to another man tim murphy from peak skill great lyricist good irish irish singer um yeah. brings tim out and he says tim meet holly you guys are gonna you're gonna perform and they literally performed the rose by bet midler like she sang and they played the music behind it yeah, it was cool but not well, like that's what the irish do man if there's a if someone does want to sing you know it's all about getting it's all about community um mm -hmm. so it's all about the more the, the more the merrier literally so yeah yeah i you know i and, and listen I, i'll 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 sing out loud you know the songs but i i don't think anybody want to pay to hear that you know what i'm saying so um so I'm always fascinated too with lyrics and I, and I've seen looking at your background, you've had some good success, obviously really great success with lyrics. Um, so how's that? Like, I don't need, I can't even do it justice. I want to kind of walk through it. So I read your bio. You really had some good, uh, you know, look like Madonna. You definitely had part in, uh, I believe killing Bono, those lyrics, like how's, how's all that happened? the journey into that world of a yeah. songwriter mm -hmm. um yeah look 17 i was writing songs from a very young age i spent all my 20s in bands original bands touring writing i wasn't interested in doing covers mm -hmm. i'd had enough of covers at 21 but then i was still again forced back into learning the covers to do pay for my bills so i'd be gigging in the pubs of belfast the weekend and i'd take off with my band leia um and it was a four-piece band and it was literally four musketeers all for one one for all in the back of a van and away we went and we had seven years together and you know we we played a lot of festivals all original material and i was i was obsessed with songwriting at that stage i was living and breathing uh mm. carrying notes with me everywhere probably too probably self self-obsessed a little probably too consumed by it all but you were you're in your 20s and we were we were all living this dream um but the big break in songwriting didn't come until about four or five years when I was 32. I spent that band finished when I was 30 and I went off. I, all I wanted to do at that stage, I was tired of touring and all I wanted to do was sit in a studio and write songs by mm. myself or with anyone that wanted to write with me. So my manager, uh, Bob Young, who's a songwriter, is from a British band called Status Quo. Bob's in his seventies now, but he's an old rocker and, um, a great songwriter, successful songwriter, knew knew a lot of the publishing world in London. And again, it's that who you know scenario. So Bob phoned up everyone he knew in the mm. industry in London. Will you write with this Irish uh, fellow wants to write? Have you any artists you want to write in this publishing house? So, so very quickly, I started right. I'd fly from Belfast into London and I'd spend maybe three, four days in London and fly back and do cover gigs at the weekend to pay the bills. Uh, it's only an hour's flight and I'd write songs continually. So quickly I started writing, uh, you know, I was pitching on 
people like Dead Mouse Records and was pitching on uh, Groove Armada Records and you were getting direct contact with these artists and, and they were sending me back line or, or backing tracks and I was doing the top line. But, you know, some of them you landed, some of them you didn't. I didn't land any Groover Matter or Dead Mouse. But there's this one guy called Ian Green, who, amazing musician, amazing songwriter, had been around. He was older than me. Um, and he was he'd worked with bands like the Brand New Heavies. And so he'd, he was steeped in a lot of soul. It was beautiful, mm. uh, beautiful. And he was, um, instantly we wrote, two songs that Madonna picked up through Paul Oakenfold. So it was a case of writing the song in London in a, in a little home studio. Oakenfold heard what we were doing. He, Ian Green was mixing stuff for Oakenfold and mastering stuff and doing a lot of production for Oakenfold. And Oakenfold was, at that time, was hanging out with Madonna and probably are still friends. So, you know, one thing led to the another. And before you knew it, Madonna was hearing what we were doing in the studio. It was that, it was that quick. It all happened within weeks, like, you know, I, and at that point I had had not one break. I had been knocking on doors, had no real sort of real significant break. Leia had been nominated, her debut album had been nominated for the best, uh, like I think we were nominated for the best new band it was at the, at the Irish Music Awards. So that mm. was her only sort of recognition. But as a songwriter, I was unknown at this point. So I went from an unknown songwriter in the music business world to a co-write on Madonna's next single, which was called Celebration. And it became the title track of her greatest hits. I think that was 2009, 10, 11 in that era. That's, that's amazing. That, that, what, a, what a great story that is. And then, and then you did, I think I was reading, you actually were, you did the lyrics or were part of that for the movie Killing Bono. Um, did you, did you work with you two on that? Never met the band. Never met. Ma this was the weird, the weird thing. Never met Madonna. Mm. Ian Green went to New York to do Madonna's parts. And then I landed the Killing Bono movie. Again, contacts of my manager, Bob Young, a wonderful lady called Jackie Perryman, who's been in the music industry forever. And Jackie ran Virgin Classical and back in the day. And she was Paul McCartney, ran, ran an MPL, Paul McCartney's publishing house. Um, and Jackie got wind uh, that there were the, the, there was a, a movie being shot in Belfast, mm. and uh, a guy called Tarquin Gotch, who's been a producer in a lot of movies over the years, including Home Alone movie, and he manages Brian Johnson from ACDC. Mm. So uh, Tarquin was a musical supervisor in this movie, and, um, so I, I started talking to Tarquin about the project and. And then got introduced to the director, Nick Ham, and it was all going to be shot in Belfast. The movie it was called Killing Bono. It was you two were back in the movie as and they'd given the blessing to make it. It was made uh, it was based on the book. I was Bono's doppelganger by Neil McCormick. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I landed basically the producer of the soundtrack. So we, we I think we wrote something. I wrote 14 songs for the movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, and produced, co-produced it with my friend Michael Keeney, who was in Leia, uh, and Mike Hedges, who produced a lot of massive records, like for U2 back in the day, and for you know worked with uh, the Cure and worked with loads of sort of sort of those eighties. I think, uh, and I'm one of the producers on the movie was Ian Flukes, who was a rock and roll background as well. So I fitted right in. There was a lot of old, so all all of these. Tarquin Gotch in his day man was the. Booking agent worked with Ian Flux, 
I can't remember the name of Flux's booking agent, but they were booking Echo and the Bunny Man and U2 mm. in the 80s, like early 80s, like when U2 were breaking these guys. Right. So there was definitely a U2 uh, uh, backing and a connection to it all. Uh, in uh, The McCormick brothers were best friends with, uh, went to school. I wouldn't say they're, I don't know if they're best friends. I think they're still best friends. Bono and, and McCormick are still pretty, pretty close after all these years. Man, that's fascinating. And then I read, so around that so celebration, around that time, 2010, you have The Killing Bono. I think I also saw you were nominated for an Oscar Academy Award for a song, right? The Al Pacino song? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was bizarre. Another sort of coming out of nowhere, bizarre moments. Um, I wrote the song in Australia. So... I wrote it with a guy called Greg Agar, uh, amazing songwriter who I'd, I'd been working with in Australia. And again, coming from the movie world, this, uh, I can't remember how I got introduced but to a lady called Julia Michaels based in Los Angeles. And Julia is a music supervisor and she's done a lot of big, big Hollywood blockbuster movies. So she's a, she's a moves in those circles and they needed a song quickly. I got the brief, there was a brief sent out to a lot of songwriters and she she reached me out to me personally and said hey look if you could write something and produce something quickly for this here's the brief they need a song for this movie for al pacino and she told me pretty quickly it was for al pacino because i phoned her and i was like right so i set off that day with greg Hagar. i drove to the blue mountains uh from sydney an hour and a half's drive to greg's home, mom and dad's house where he has a home studio and we wrote and produced this song called hey baby doll we worked till like 2 a.m in the morning doing all these high falsetto vocals annoying the neighbors and uh and uh yeah it was a big sort of neil diamond inspired uh song big big sing-along hands in the air song um and it, it, we got it we got it into the movie and al pacino opens the movie at the greek theater singing this song hey baby doll to everyone in fact there's the t-shirt uh, uh that was that's so that was in the audience that is so cool and um and and listen if it, it kind of goes without saying i know you're irish but i don't know if anybody you, you're infectious man you are just infectious and i see it's so much fun talking to you because I can just feel the joy from what you do coming out. And I always love talking to people like that. So well, this is, thank uh, you. Thanks for the kind words, man. It's fantastic, man. So, um, all right. So now around 2011, you, you become the lead singer of in excess. Yeah. How the heck does that happen? Again, I have no idea. Right place, right time. Again, uh, putting myself out there and meeting everyone. I was touring Australia, unknown artist. I was calling myself Joe Echo. God knows why, but I, I took this notion after the band Leia. I didn't want to be called Kieran Gribben. I wanted to sort of call myself a name. Um, I looked at artists like Moby and Bjork and these mm. sort of one word names. And so I was like, right. So I was releasing music under this moniker, Joe Echo. And my manager again, Bob, had met Michael Chug, an Australian legendary pro producer. Um, they go, Chuggy and my Bob, my manager, go back to the 70s when Status Quo were, were touring Australia. And that was one of their biggest markets. And they were having, you know, 70s rock classic hits and number one singles and tour sold out tours. So Bob met Chuggy in London. And then Chuggy said to Bob, we're organizing this festival in Perth and all of the Australian industry, music industry is going to be there. 
and we're and we're bringing in a lot of industry from Asia and India and you know so you you know Thai labels and all this sort of stuff. So we were like, absolutely, let's get on the train. So off we went to Australia. Bob and I arrived in Perth. It was forty degree heat, and and it was the best experience ever. I, I literally met the who's who of the Australian industry. I met Steve Strange, an agent from Belfast who just passed it last year, who is a legend of the music industry. Steve's from Carrick Fergus in Northern Ireland, and he has helped basically every Irish artist that's ever been. He's one of those mm. characters. We sadly lost him uh, uh, last year. So that happened. I ended up in Australia. So while we were there, uh, you know, we did a lot of meetings in Melbourne and Sydney. And I was staying at Bob's sister's with Bob. Uh, Bob's family moved there years ago, and they lived in this gorgeous home in the northern beaches of Sydney, and and like this big super yacht at the bottom of the garden, and it's a very wealthy, well-to-do area. So I was like, "This is Australia. I've landed on my feet," and we were enjoying it. And on the first day, I met Andrew Farris, the keyboard player mm -hmm. from NXS. He was a neighbor and was really good friends, and yeah, and. You know, I was staying there for, I don't know, five days, six days. So I had this beautiful every day hanging out with Andrew Farris, meeting him for lunch one day or meeting him for dinner for another. And it always ended up back at this house when there was always a sing song because he would sing a few, I'd sing a few. And there was a local band called Georgia Fair who were signed to Sony, sadly no longer with us in Australia. The band's no longer there, but they were an amazing little duo act. So they were singing songs. And you had all of these sort of cool little Northern Beaches surfy artists turning up it was, i was i was in dreamland every night because we were playing songs old in excess records and we were listening to stuff and you know and i i was i was hanging with a guy who i loved growing up the band i i i i watched in excess you know probably around 14 15 16 17 i was getting into the records and i remember having a vhs copy of of live baby live or live baby live whatever you want to call it um of them playing in Wembley so I'd watched that mm. on re on repeat a few days in a row and tried to learn riffs and got to know who NXS were and, and yeah and here I am hanging on the northern beaches with this this guy who uh who's a, a legend he's a, an amazing songwriter like Andrew was the guy that wrote all the songs with Michael Hutchins so you know co-wrote co-wrote with Michael so, and, and produced a lot of the records, you know, he would he would start the productions on old tape, get the drum machine out, all that drum machine I need you tonight. That's all Andrew playing all that stuff and synth bass and, you know, and then it worked with the producer. So he and I had this four or five days where I'd be asking him questions about what was it like to work with this producer and that producer mm. and, you know, what studio was your best studio? And he would tell me all of these stories of the band. So I was loving it. I was having the, the, the dream time. Um, and then I sang, I sang a song and that was, that was the sort of, uh, I sang an NXS song that night and he loved it. So that was the sort of the start of the, the, the friendship. That's, that's fantastic. So, so I, I'm always curious about something like this. So you take the stage with NXS and you're, you're, you're singing that music. How's that feel for you? Like, are you trying to put your own spin on it or are you trying to kind of mimic what, what Michael had done? I think it's a wee, I think it's a little bit of both. You you know, it, it was a battle to be honest. 
because um, it was a massive step up for me. I'd never done a gig like this before. I, I was a solo artist at this stage. I'd stood in front of Leia for seven years playing an electric guitar. Um, this was a whole different ball game. You know, Michael was sadly gone probably 20 years at this stage. Um, and I was the last guy coming in after JD Fortune. Um, mm. So there was a lot of, you know, a lot to deal with. And then you had to think, well, how do I approach singing these songs? Uh, you know, I moved my family from Ireland, you know, three months into Australia with a newborn. And three months later, I was on stage with In Excess in, in South America, Arequipa and Buenos Aires at a festival. So look, I think, but after the first couple of gigs, I wanted to put me into it. And they, a lot of the songs had been rearranged, so I didn't have to stick true to how Michael sang them, but I learned the songs how Michael sang the songs and I, and I played them on repeat. I lived and breathed the morning, noon and night. I walked with Michael in my ears, so I knew his phrases. And then you have to kind of unlearn them so that you can sort of put mm. yourself into them. But it was, it's, a, it's a tough one. The audience are turning up wanting to hear the songs, how they, were, they are on the record. So, you know, I had to get over a lot of hurdles psychologically. But after about two songs, Two, two gigs, the first two gigs in South America, I was like, I've got this. I, I, and every, every other night, every other show, I just smiled from ear to ear because I was just in the moment. I was comfortable, you know? Well, I can say this to you. I mean, I went again looking on some videos on YouTube and hearing you sing some of those songs. I mean, I think you definitely did a great job. I mean, the one that stood um, out to me was Never Tear Us Apart. Um, I thought you, thought you absolutely nailed it. And I tell everybody listening to this, check out Kieran's versions of some of these songs because they're they're fantastic. So yeah. <laughs> you're very kind, my friend. Thank you. Hey, listen, it's easy to be kind when I when I mean what I'm saying. And, you know, I really do. And you, you do. You have an amazing gift and your vocals are fantastic. And and thank you for that answer. I mean, that, that was deep. I'm always curious about that when how how a singer approaches that. So um so currently are you still singing are you still fronting in excess or are you doing more of your own stuff no no the the band i did a i did a year with the band um on of gigs i did 50 shows with them um maybe a little more um and it finished but i'm still friends with every one of them i'm still writing with most of them um i'm in regular contact with john in particular now um john and i have been writing recently we released a song uh john's a drummer uh i still write i've written a lot with andrew so john and i released a, a project last during covid called jack j-a-c john and kieran and uh we've re released one song with probably half a dozen songs on the boil that were sort of started during the sort of covid era and i, I think our biggest problem at the minute is finding time uh, to fin to finish those songs, but th that'll happen. So that project's on the boil. Um, and Andrew has just released a, a last during the COVID era, uh, a country album. I've got a few songs on that album that we wrote when I became the singer of in excess. So those songs were sort of modified for and the new single. You are my rock Andrew's new single, which, which is I'm really uh, delighted to for him and me. It's a co-write because it, it entered the charts 
the, the American country charts, the official charts uh, about a month ago. Um, and it sort of was a slow climb. It got a lot of support across mm -hmm. American country radio. And he had a good few months of like a lot of the sort of country radio people embracing his sound and the, and the song. So that's that's been a lovely ride with he and I just to see these songs get out there. They were written, I don't know, 10 years ago. So it's good mm -hmm. to get them out there, you know. I want to have to check that out too. Is I mean, I'm not I'm not a huge country fan. I like a lot of different kinds of music, but my wife is a huge country fan. Like, we have a radio station that's like 92XTU. That's the country station. When I get in the car, that's the station that's on all the time. So I'll have to check that out and uh, see oh, how. Man, how can how can you not like about a country? You're American, oh, man. You got I do. Got to be cut. There's got to be some country you like. I I I, I do well. One of my favorite artists of all time, and I just recently i I got a um, unopened original vinyl pressing of a John Denver album that he did the cover of "Let It Be," and it i it's the one cover of a Beatles song that I kind of may like close to the original. It's it's that. It's that good for me. But yeah, I, you know, growing up, John Denver. John Denver, sadly, no longer with us. Yeah, the plane so crash. He did, a, he, did, he did a good, he did a great version of what? Let it be. Mm. Did you say, or, yeah, let it be. Yeah, man. Well, yeah, he really, he really <laughs> did. Um, so, so yeah, so yeah, we're in, a, we're in all kinds of music. Um, so, so now I, obviously I want to ask you about your career in music, but you have this other thing that you're doing also that I'm kind of really, um, I, I thought was interesting rock and roll team building yeah tell us a little well, bit I, about that <laughs> well rock and roll team building um started eight years ago in australia um it's a business that i started myself but then joined up with a professional event um maybe a person nicole white and about six seven years ago um and essentially it started after in excess i got asked to speak in the corporate world and I was instantly said, well, I'll do a 45-minute keynote on my career. And I was like, well, as long as I can put a guitar around my neck and I can play some music. So if that was the safety net. I could mm. always go back to the music. So but the entertainer in me going into these corporate events, there's a lot of dry content. There's a speaker on before you and there's a speaker on after you and there's a pie chart on, on each of these. And everyone's mm. like, you know, drilling down the side of their face at some of these things. So I was instantly going, right, well, I've, I'm an entertainer. I've got to vibe up the room. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. So that's where rock and roll team building was born in the corporate event space. Um, and for the last sort of mm. seven, eight years, started in Australia, going into corporate events, bringing teams together. I'm using all of the skills that I have as a, a writer, producer, songwriter, performer, entertainer, uh, and then and then bring it. It's all about audience interaction. So it runs like a show, usually 90 minutes. But mm. I we start with a bang, a live band on stage, and we then we pull people out of the audience. They go backstage to get dressed up like rock stars. The band leave the stage and put mm. them through their paces backstage. And, uh, and then I get everyone in the room focusing on breath, focusing on the hum, 
Mm. Uh, not every not everybody can sing or they say, oh, I can't sing. Charles has already said he can't sing, but everybody can hum. So I get everybody humming and humming does the same thing as singing. It makes you focus on your breath. If you can get into that breathing in and then humming out, it's an extension mm. of meditation. And very, very soon everyone in the room is singing in choir. So it, uh, in 10, 15 minutes, I have the room in three-part harmony singing. Mm -hmm. Then our first rock stars join us on stage with the live band and they walk on dressed like the performer, whether it be Axel Rose or whoever you want it to be. That's fantastic. And and I was curious about it too, because I I know the look, the drool. I know the look. I've I've probably I've probably been the guy speaking causing the drool. So I thought that was um I thought that was interesting. Well, that's that's really, really cool. And then and then Kieran, it's just it's so ironic though that we're talking now because just yesterday. I find, obviously, again, since I'm just kind of starting to know you, I see this thing, a, a post on LinkedIn, and, and a little bit more serious topic, but seems like you have some foundation that deals with uh, some, some men's mental health. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, the group is called W Now, When No One's Watching, it's called. So it was started by two uh, Irishmen in Sydney, one's a famous footballer called Tag Canelli, AFL and Gaelic footballer. The other is David Eccles, who's a director at uh, uh, Enterprise Ireland and in Australia. But essentially, these two gents 18 months ago got on the beach of Maroubra in Sydney, and it was it's essentially bringing men onto the beach just to have a bit of exercise, get in the water. And then we all stand about and have a cup of tea, coffee at the end of it. So it's a very simple idea, but it's become, in the last 18 months, it's just grown and grown and grown. Um, men of all walks of life, uh, every nationality, um, all on the beach, Wednesday morning, 6 a.m., um, exercise, 20 minutes, half an hour, in the water. Everyone gets in the water and then everyone stands about and has a cup of tea before they go to their work. So it's 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 something that has affected me. I, I've already been up. They, 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 they did a they called it the retreat, not a retreat because they didn't mm -hmm. want it to be a retreat. When 19 of us, I think, in total went up Kosciuszko, the highest mountain in Australia, just before the snow came. But it was bloody still bloody cold and wet. And we walked 23 kilometers up the mountain. So it's, essentially it's about you know, you can check out wnow.com.au uh, and you can see their, what they want to do. But it's about helping men uh, be better men, husbands, fathers, mates. And, and the support that they've already uh, given out to men is phenomenal. And they're partnering up. It's just grown. It's into something that's it's, it's amazing. Uh, uh, this morning, the ABC News were on the beach for the second time. So that, that tells you how, how, how successful it's grown. Man, that, that's so cool to me, and it just makes me feel good. We were talking a little before we started. I'm involved with uh, the NGBN network and similar similar focus, men's men's health, mental health, you know, 40s, 50s, and 60s. But I think, you know, when I talk to a lot of people about this, and I, I think you probably agree with me, it, it's sad, but, like, there's such a stigma around mental health, and it's like so many people just rather – suffer in silence than then choose to talk about it it's it's scary and especially around this time of year i just think it's even more of it, it's always pertinent but it's even more pertinent because it's as happy of a time as it is for a lot of us it's the saddest times for for other people so 
so kudos to you and all involved in that, Kieran. I mean, that's amazing work, and I'm really happy to hear that. Oh, look, I think I, I think it's needed. Uh, we're all we're all uh, suffering a bit of trauma after the last few years and continual trauma. If you watch the news every day, I tend to sort of just sc scan over the headlines and then don't go back for a few days because it's all a bit uh, traumatic. Um, so it's about help being, helping each other, just being good mates and doing what we can for each other. So, I, you know, the one thing about growing up where I grew up was about the community when there is, you know, tough times and things are happening around you, your neighbor becomes very close. Your neighbor becomes like a family member. And, and that's, that's kind of what this is about. Just helping it's community. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, well, listen, man, I'm really, really, it's been great having the chance to speak with you. Um, I, you know, now we got serious now, now I'll put you on the spot. I know we talked a little bit. Um, are you are you willing to maybe do a song for me? I actually, you know, funny you asked that. I have lyrics. I'll have to put on my glasses, but I could sing you this new song that I wrote because this Friday that group are marching from Palm Beach to Marubra Beach. It's 45 miles um, and they're leaving 6 a.m. Friday morning. Um, and it's it's basically there's going to be stop, pit stops along the way along the northern beaches of sydney um they'll go through the heart of sydney and they'll arrive at maroubra beach probably at 10 p.m that night um so everyone's welcome to join um it's it's a it's a it's a walk to highlight the just to support men suicide awareness uh particularly in men and uh yeah if I, the song's called the 60 men because the 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 w now group um, Ty Canelli and David talk every day about we do 60 press-ups in a circle for the 60 men that are um, that are falling every hour to suicide so mm. so that would be awesome great well if you don't mind I'm going to put the glasses on if, <laughs> I'll try and not mess it up if this is the first live performance of this I've only written I've only written it this week so even better premiered the world premiere <laughs> it is the world premiere and it's it's still on it's still on uh scratchy notes here so forgive me if i have to stop and start <laughs> to read my own handwriting Marching on the weekend up at Palm Beach, Sydney They walk the northern beaches through the heart of the city The calling time, they're drawing a line They're marching every day Cause 60 men are falling every hour of every day We're walking to the beach at Maroubra With blisters on our feet to Maroubra We'll see ya on the beach at Maroubra Ah, and a child had lost a father, a mother lost her son, a sister lost a brother, every minute lost and gone. Have you heard about the 60 men? The 60 men. Have you heard about the 60 men? The 60 men. On the weekend up at Palm Beach, Sydney They walk the northern beaches through the heart of the city They're calling time, they're drawing the line They're watching 60Ks Cause 60 men are falling every hour of every day I'll leave it at that Wow, 
uh, you sounded great, but I don't want to, I, I know it's serious subject matter, but it, it sounded excellent. But the, the lyrics about the 60 men falling every day, that's, that's wow. Well, so, thank you, man. Like, I think, look, this is not about me. Uh, this group that I'm a part of, they want, I think Ty Canelli said he wants to help a million men. They've got, they've got massive uh, dreams, David Eccles and the, and the team that's around them. It's, so I'm just, I was inspired to write the song. I won't be marching the, the 45 miles to Sydney. These guys are doing it, but I might turn up and sing a song for them along the way. I have a gig uh, the night before and, and I'm gigging Friday night, so I have to be here somewhere else. But it's a, it's an, these, these men are inspirational. And, and uh, so it's just, it's nice to be able to write a song about it. It's inspired me. So if it's, that's always good. Now that that's, it, it's amazing. And it's such a worthy cause and it's really, really great. You're doing this. Um, well, Kieran, listen, man, I, again, I appreciate just you willing to take the time to talk to, uh, you know, the amateur podcaster like myself. And, uh, it's been, it's been a blast and I really, well, really appreciate it. Charles, thanks for having us, mate. If um, if you don't mind, I'll plug two websites, um, uh, rockandrollteambuilding.com. If you want to have a party uh, at, a, at a corporate event or any type of party and you want musicians, give us a shout. And then Vibrate Your Mind, which is all about sound healing, sound therapy, vibrations, good vibes, chakras, uh, resonating the body with the hum. Um, mm. uh, so vibrateyourmind.com as well. Thank you, Charles, for having me. Appreciate it, man. Good luck with, with all you're doing. Uh, thank you, Kieran. And I'll be sure to make sure every, uh, all your links are in the, uh, show notes. So people are easily able to find you. So, all right, everyone. Well, thank you again. And all of all the podcasts, we had a world premiere music first time ever a musical guest. <laughs> well, we're, we're breaking new ground every day here, Kieran. Thank you. <laughs> uh, my pleasure, my friend. Good luck. All right, man. Thanks, this everyone. This has been the Bear Essentials. Thanks for listening. And remember, never hibernate on your goals.